0: Hello everyone!
1: I hope you are all having a great start to this new year and welcome back to the Miss Independent podcast. For today's episode we have a very special guest. We have Liz Enriquez from Ambitious Adulting. So just a bit of background about Liz. Liz helps Canadian millennials learn about finances in a fun and non-intimidating way. As a young adult, Liz struggled with anxiety around money and became committed to improving her financial literacy to help her cope. So she dove deep into personal finance books, blogs, and podcasts and saved $100,000 by the time she was 26. She's been featured in BNM Bloomberg, Globe and Mail, and Apartment Therapy and hosts her own show, Ambitious Adulting on Cable 14.
2: Awesome, Liz. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time and and you being on here.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited. Thanks for having
2: me. Yeah, no problem. Um, Thanks for reaching out. We love collaborating with other people. And um, maybe where we can start is um, just ask you about your background and how you started Ambitious Adulting.
0: Yeah, so I started Ambitious Adulting as a blog um, in 2016. And it wasn't called Ambitious Adulting at the time. At the time, I was mostly writing about my do-it-yourself projects for my house that I had bought. Um, So I had bought my house and then was so house poor, like I had no money left over. So I was fixing everything by myself. And then I kind of finished fixing up my house and ran out of things to write about. So I took a little break from blogging Um, And I took a look at my analytics to see, okay, what do people like reading about? Like, what should I continue writing about? Because I really liked blogging. And most people honestly just clicked on the links about like how I saved for a house and how I bought my first house at 24 and how I was able to put a 20% down payment. So I was like, okay, I mean, I guess people want to learn about money. So that's when I really started writing about how to budget, how to save and how to invest. And it really just grew from there. And I was able to turn my blog into my full-time job in 2018.
2: Oh, that's amazing. Um, It's great to hear that at 24, you're able to put a down payment on a house of 20%. Katie and I are kind of in the (laughs) same boat where we've been um, trying to help our listeners understand what that that process looks like. Um, So it's great that people were interested in it. I mean, that's something, especially right now that is really difficult to do for a lot of people. So breaking down the process um, has a lot of value.
0: Yeah. I mean, and it was hard at the time for me too. Like I was overbidding, I was losing on houses. I was going in without conditions. Like it was so competitive, but it's getting harder and harder now. I, but I also don't think it's impossible. Like it was hard when I did it in 2016 and it's hard now, but yeah, there's different strategies and different kind of hacks out there to get into real estate, if that's what you want, like, not everybody needs to get into real estate or buy a house, like there's other ways to make money. So yeah, I definitely acknowledge how difficult it is, though.
2: For sure, especially the piece that you mentioned about putting in offers without conditions, that that is something that um, I've considered. And it's, it's so risky, right? If you don't know if you're going to be approved for financing or maybe you are pre-approved, but there's still so many things that can happen between the closing date and when you actually put the offer in. So um, mm-hmm. definitely a good strategy.
0: Yeah. I mean, the other thing too, is uh, I think millennials and just younger people in general have a totally different understanding of the housing market. Like I, older people would talk to me like, that's so reckless. That's so irresponsible. And like, I'm like, okay, that's, Thank you for your opinion, but like you are so out of touch with the reality of what's happening. Like I know it's risky; it's not something I want to do, but that's the way of the market right now. It's totally different than when our parents bought houses.
2: No, for sure, it's it's a whole different ball game when you're going in. There's eleven offers um, that are out there, but you're right about real estate maybe not being for everyone. It's it's really cash heavy, especially at first, if you're putting down a significant deposit and you're taking on a lot of risk, um, mm-hmm. carrying a mortgage. Especially if you're investing in the Toronto area, I don't know where you're you are right now, Liz, but the Toronto market is just wild. Um, it's so hot right now, and everything is so overvalued.
0: Yeah, I know. Yeah, you, house hunting, house hunting out there.
2: Yeah, I was gonna say, Liz, it's um it's awesome that you you kind of transitioning. You you talked about other people. I'm sorry about people not necessarily needing to invest in real estate. And um, Katie and I talked about like REITs being a way for yeah. people to get their their foot in the door with real estate Um, and just other kinds of investments like getting in with, with other people and um, trying to find income generating properties, but outside of real estate, how, how did you transition the blog to what it is now?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm glad you brought all those points up because a lot of times people get stuck on their first house and how they can't afford it and don't really open up their mind to things like reads, uh, co-partnerships, joint ventures. Um, there's so many different things, co-signing. There's If you really want to get into real estate, there are a lot of different routes to do it, not just saving up a down payment to buy your first house. So that's a really good and important point that you made. But uh, essentially how I got into the blog was uh, talking about a few different topics, mostly saving and then investing for me like I got into real estate investing after I got into the stock market so I started investing when I was 18 that was the first year that the TFSA kind of came into existence here in Canada my dad had heard about it we didn't know much about it but we went to the bank I opened up my TFSA and it was kind of perfect timing and the stars aligned so even though I didn't know much about investing I got my foot in the door and bought a few, you know, mutual funds or whatever the bank told me at the time. My strategy has completely changed. I do my own stock picking and ETF picking, but when I started, I just went into the bank and followed their advice. So, you know, there's pros and cons to that, but ultimately the best thing was getting started early.
1: Yeah. And I just wanted to clarify for our listeners what a REIT is. So it's a real estate investment trust. So it's a company that owns and operates income generating properties, just to clarify.
2: So they might have a bunch of um, either commercial properties or residential properties that they invest in and they trade on the stock market. So you can own shares or own a portion of a company that invests in a bunch of real estate properties. So benefits is it's diversified, but downside, like with everything happening right now um, in the market, REITs are significantly down, especially ones that invest in commercial properties, obviously.
1: And just Mm -hmm. to add into that a little bit more, if we're talking about stocks, REITs normally pay a dividend um, on a monthly basis. So that's one of the perks of owning REITs as well.
2: Liz, you, you said some really interesting things, though, about starting early. And this is something that Katie and I are huge proponents of. Um, the earlier that you guys start investing, the earlier you can retire. And if you are constantly investing, let's say, $500 or $100 a month into your TFSA, that compounds. And we have uh, an amazing blog post that's coming out that details what that compound looks like over, over the years, depending on how much you actually invest.
0: Um, yeah. And, and the thing that stops people from investing early is that they don't know what they're doing. And that's totally normal. Of course, you don't know what you're doing. Like, why would you? No one taught you this. But I don't think that fear of the unknown should stop you from dipping your toes in the water. And I think that the easiest way to learn is when you're in it, um, you know, mitigate your risk. Don't just go out and be like, I'm going to invest in Bitcoin if you have no idea what that means but there are some pretty low risk options, like some pretty general um, exchange treated funds, or even just using a robo-advisor that does all of the, the picking for you. Uh, you don't need to know that much to get started. And then you can learn as you go.
2: For sure. And that's something that we, we talk about um, with people understanding what their risk tolerance is. So robo-advisors are great if you are less risk adverse and, Uh, or sorry rather more risk adverse yeah yeah more risk averse and also uh depending on how much time you want to invest like if you want to research companies read financial statements really know what companies you're investing in and why then picking individual stocks is is a great strategy but for somebody that wants to be a little bit more hands-off etfs mutual funds um, indexes are are awesome strategies as well
0: Mm -hmm. and that's really the key point like you do not have to be an active stock picker And read reports every single day like I think a lot of times people get really caught up on like oh I don't know what I'm doing like it's okay you can still invest with limited knowledge
2: yeah and you learn as you go like Katie and I um, started investing I would say maybe seven years ago and a lot of what we learned is from um, things that our our parents or grandparents have told us and unfortunately financial literacy isn't something that they teach in school systems so it's it's awesome that you have have gone out there and started a service where you teach people how to take control of their finances and um, provide actionable advice so i think it's it's really great what you're doing Liz Um,
0: thanks i know i thought i found like it's so secretive and also so intimidating to ask questions. Like when I was trying to find a financial advisor to manage my money, I just felt really dumb and kind of insecure about money management. I'm like, okay, I have to take it upon myself to learn, um, so that I could ask better questions. And then eventually I just kind of got into a rabbit hole, um, of reading blogs and listening to podcasts like this one, like, you know, just, there's a lot of information out there. So it's, it's, good I think when people are sharing resources that help others manage their finances like we have to teach ourselves and luckily we have the internet so
2: yeah Yeah. that's that's an amazing point especially I had a similar experience like when I went to go see my first advisor and I was opening up um first I opened up a checking and savings account. I remember I did this the day I turned 18, or sorry, the day I turned uh, 18, I opened up a TFSA rather. But mm-hmm. I remember talking to the advisor and he was just saying all of these things to me. And I realized like, I don't know what you're talking about at all. And yeah. I, instead of just sitting there and pretending like I know, um, can you give me some resources for how I can learn? And um, the, the guy that I was talking to is super nice. And he told me to go on Reddit and check out this, um, this subreddit called r pers- slash personal finance. Yeah. It's- is where I live, but that's that's a great place for basically self-educating. Um, especially,
0: I love Reddit. Yeah, especially for personal finance. Like I was on it this morning for an hour and a half. Um. So yeah, D- did you find like what you were looking for?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like you can just type in uh, into the search bar different things, like how TFSA works. People will break it down, and then there's conversation on that subreddit as well. Um. So it's one of the first things that I check actually um, throughout my day, like when I actually log on to to my computer, um, I just like to see what's what's new on uh, on that on that subreddit.
0: I agree. I also I found Reddit pretty late. I, I had a hard time navigating it, like the interface and the user experience. I'm like, how the heck does this work? And I don't I don't really understand, like the lingo, like upvotes, downvotes, all that stuff. I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. Like I'm not part of the Reddit culture, but I definitely find a lot of nuggets of information on Reddit and people are so, um, you know, they're generous with the information. They just like fully tell you, but then there's also so many varying opinions and discussions, which I think is good for you to make your own opinion. But sometimes I feel like I'm like, I'm even more confused now than when I started because there's so much information.
2: Yeah. And I think, Liz, going back to what you said initially, like when you go see an advisor, you're the one that's looking out for you. That other person has their own agenda. They have something else that they're trying to achieve. Um, so maybe they're trying to sell you a mortgage or trying to sell you a mutual fund, you know? So having um, having yourself do the research is so critical because nobody is is going to look out for you more than you do.
0: Yeah. There's also biases that you might not even be aware of. Like, I think one of the biggest mistakes I did early on in my personal finance journey was just blindly trusting what the bank said, because I didn't have any exposure to alternatives. I had no idea what like my own stock picking would look like or exchange treated funds. And at the time I was only presented with like very expensive mutual funds. And I'm like, okay, great. Like the bank is going to look out for me. They're going to help me get rich. So I'll just do whatever they tell me. And as I continued investing and learning more and diving into Reddit and listening to podcasts and, you know, doing my own research, I realized there's a whole other world of investments out there that was not presented to me. And that's just, that's their agenda. Like they, the bank needs to sell certain products and that's how they make their money and not really in their best interest to let you know all of the other alternatives out there.
2: Yeah, that's a really great point and that's why i think a lot of people don't necessarily you know trust banks um you think about like I, what the image that comes to mind right now is uh, like a grandmother that stashes cash uh, cash in her couch um, oh yeah yeah so i think that's it's a misconception though because banks aren't always up to get you they have great financial services that they provide and and they have value that they add to society um I think it's just a misconception. Same with credit cards. Like people have this idea that credit cards are evil and you never want to, um, you know, buy things on credit. And, and I think that's a big misconception um, as well.
0: Yeah, I agree. I love using my credit card. Also, I have no issues with the big banks. I just value transparency more. So I still use a big bank for the purposes that I need it for, but now I know there's other things out there. Um, And for credit cards, yeah, I use my credit card for every single purchase and pay it off. Like, I use my credit card essentially like a debit card, but you know, with the points and all the extra security that I get with a credit card. So yeah, there is, there's a lot of kind of general personal t- finance tips out there. And some of them are like, don't use credit cards and debt is bad, but eventually you kind of learn how to hack the system to use these um, products and services to your advantage
1: yeah, so let's talk a little bit about credit cards. Um, I had a question, something that I was looking up that I still don't know the answer to. Maybe you can help me with it. How many okay. credit cards are too many credit cards? Like how many credit cards should one have?
0: That's a good point. And I think, it kind of depends what you're using your credit cards for. So I learned that one credit card is not enough. When I got robbed in Rome and had no <laughs> way of surviving, so sorry. <laughs> All it got stolen. And I was like, wow, I really need a separate credit card that I store somewhere else, like not in my wallet, but maybe in like my carry on bag or something. So anyways, that's when I first started getting into like multiple credit cards could serve a purpose. Um, I think ultimately it depends on what you're using your credit cards for. Like, if your life is pretty simple, you have a few bills, and you know, I don't know, you don't really have a lot going on, like, one or two is probably fine. If you travel a lot, maybe looking into a travel rewards card. But, like, I have a rental property and I use a Canadian tire credit card, not sponsored, just what I use, because I, Buy a lot of stuff for the rental property that are like home improvement kind of things, and I get good cash rewards on that. So, like different credit cards, if you're <clears throat> if you're a regular shopper at that store, might be beneficial. If you're a traveler, might be beneficial. Um, I wouldn't go more than maybe four. That's probably just like a general, you know, number to help you track your spending and not get overwhelmed. Yeah,
1: because from my understanding, what I've read, the more credit limit you have is best when it comes to your credit score. However, opening up too many credit cards can also lower your credit score. So I was just a little confused on that.
0: Yeah, so you can have one credit card with a huge credit limit. Like some of my credit cards have like a $40,000 credit limit. So it's not like you need multiple ones to increase your credit limit. Like that's one way to do it. But also, yeah, opening different lines of credit um, can affect your credit score in the short term because, you know, the the bureaus that monitor all this are like, why is this person, like it's a little bit sus to just like constantly be opening new credit cards all the time. But once you have a longer history of that credit, then it's, it's fine, it kind of evens out.
1: Yeah. Liz, I'm very impressed by you and how you took your blog and monetized it and now have become this coach and mentor to people and offer various services such as like clarification calls and mentorship (laughs) programs. And I was just wondering what is the biggest problem you see your clients face financially? Are people in credit card debt?
0: A lot of people are in credit card debt. And what I realized was my audience specifically is not in credit card debt because they come to me for side hustle support, like how to make more income mm-hmm. and investing guidance. So there are different journeys. There's different levels of where people are in their money journey or you know in their finance journey. And a lot of people start off with just wanting to get financially stable or get out of debt. And then they move on to the next step of like, okay, how do I get financially independent? So living on my own and making my own money and budgeting properly. And then the next step is how do I get financial freedom? So becoming work optional, having multiple income streams. And that's the group of people that I mostly work with um, just because they resonate the most with my services and my story. And that's where I am, is not really worrying about my day-to-day bills because I've already got that under control. I'm mostly focused on, okay, how do we increase your income and how do we optimize the money that you have now to continue to generate more money versus letting it sit stagnant in your bank account? So people are all over the place with their finances, but that's mostly where I see my clients is they have savings but they don't know what to do with it because they're scared of investing. They're scared of losing that financial stability. They are worried about losing money in the stock market or in real estate. And it's really just like people are scared to make decisions about their money because they don't know what's out there.
2: Yeah, Liz, that's, that's a great point. Um, We posted something on our Instagram the other day about different levels of financial wealth. So how people start off depending on somebody else for income and then they move into a phase where they're, living paycheck to paycheck. Um Katie and I are actually in, in a similar position to you where we're um more striving towards like financial independence and our investments are are working for us. But a lot of people, like a lot of our listeners mainly are in in a phase where, like you said, they're they're looking to make investments or they have money sitting in their savings, which is actually one of the worst things you can do because yeah. you know, inflation grows at like 2% and you're, you're basically losing 2% a year um, if you keep your money in your savings account. So you always want to have your money work for you and having a side hustle, having multiple income streams, whether that's um, you know maybe investing in stocks and you have rental dividends income. or rental income, like real estate is such an awesome investment um, strategy as well. But it's great that you're, you're teaching people how to take risk. And I think that's a big thing that people need to overcome for themselves. And I think a lot of it comes down to education. So like you said, researching and um, going on Reddit or, or listening to podcasts, that definitely helps, but talking to like-minded people is a, is a huge um, piece of that as well. Cause you get to hear what other people are doing and yeah. And you get
0: to see that it's possible I think for a long time, I just thought, oh, other people can be successful, but I can't because I didn't have money growing up. So I just kind of thought it'll never happen to me. And then when I started changing my mindset and seeing like people near me do certain things or people that I looked up to talk about, you know, multiple income streams, I'm like, okay, well, why can't I do that? Like what's stopping me from doing that? And so just listening to different perspectives and seeing how you know, it is a reality. Like people are actually doing this and then finding out like, okay, what are the steps they took to do this? That's really what I help people with. Like, I know it's possible to get out of debt. I've done it. I know it's possible to break, you know, cycles of poverty. I've done it. And I can show you how to do it. And that's why I started my blog and run my Instagram account. And for people who want to kind of dive deeper then that's where I do mentorship for. But like I share so many of my tips for free all the time online every day, all day. So, you know, the information is out there, but we really have to take it upon ourselves to learn.
2: Yeah, definitely, Liz. Um, one, one moment for me that kind of struck out, like I had a very similar experience where my mindset just shifted and I realized truly anything is possible. The only limit that you have is is your mind and the the limiting beliefs that you tell yourself. So Mm -hmm. I read this one book, um, it's called You Are a Badass at Making Money by Jen Cicero. And she talks about how to get yourself in this money making mindset. So it's an amazing read that that I want to recommend all of our listeners. It's fairly short, but it was fantastic for getting you into that mindset. Um, Liz, is there anything like that that you read that really resonated with you?
0: Yeah, so there's the, the Tim Ferriss book, 4-Hour Work Week. Um, and essentially, it's like, how do you optimize your time and how do you create multiple income streams? That book was really useful for me. F.U. Money by Dan Locke. He really talked a lot about um, the, I think it's called the income quadrant. Like you can either be self-employed, you can be a business owner, you can rely on passive income. Like essentially just opening up your mind to more than just working a nine to five. There's nothing wrong with a nine to five, but I was unfulfilled in mine and I felt stuck. And I think a lot of people feel like that. And I never want to glamorize entrepreneurship because it is super freaking hard. And I don't want to just say like, follow your passion and quit your job and do what you love. No, like it requires a lot of work to run your own business. But just know that, okay, maybe, you know, you might be unsatisfied with your nine to five, but it's giving you financial stability. So what can you do on the side that gives you a little bit more Joy and lets you, you know, explore creative outlets. Um, So that was a really good book for that. And then there was another one I liked called, oh, I can't remember. It was by Mickey Agrawl. She, I think, helped found Nick's underwear and it was do cool shit. And it was essentially just like how to go for your dreams and how to, essentially like what I got from that book was like how to find creative ways to start your business. Um, or run like entrepreneurial projects. So those three books stand out to me.
2: Yeah, with uh, with Nick's underwear, Joanna Nix, um, follow her on Instagram. She's an amazing woman. She's pregnant right now, she has a few kids, and she's just a badass entrepreneur. She just in the middle of a pandemic opened her first retail location um on Queen Street West, which is you know unheard of. But I I know that she's just crushing it because she's got an amazing product, a great vision. And I think that's what entrepreneurship comes down to. It's solving a significant problem um, or or not a significant problem, but to a very niche group of people That's that it's important to. And, you know, running with it over time, like when I first started my business, I, I didn't quit my 9 to 5. I actually still have my 9 to 5 because it helps me fund my business and consistently helps me reinvest into it to help it scale. Um, it's not at that point yet where we can – sustain through the three partners that have started it um so a lot of people i think need to understand that you know if they want to go into entrepreneurship it's a journey it doesn't start the day that you decide to to build a startup or um you know build a product it it's a journey and you learn so much as you go
0: yeah i mean i ran ambitious adulting um for two years as a side hustle and I had another business before which I still kind of run which was social media marketing um so they were all side hustles I kept my nine to five and then when my side hustles made as much as my nine to five I quit so I'm like okay obviously I can sustain myself um so here we go but yeah it was a process it didn't just happen overnight
1: I wanted to go back a little bit (laughs) to (laughs) the credit card topic, just because I'm so interested in it and I feel like it would just help a lot of people. You said that you have a Canadian tire credit card, Liz. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Especially if you're a homeowner. I was just wondering what types of things do you look for when picking a credit card?
0: Oh, great question. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. So you
1: mentioned earlier that, I guess, you probably did a lot of renovations and um, since you're a homeowner, Canadian Tire makes sense, but what are some other things that maybe you look for?
0: Yeah, so one of the things is uh, the fee, the monthly fee, or sorry, it's usually an annual fee. If you're a business owner, you can expense that annual fee. So it's kind of like, okay, it goes out, it kind of cancels out essentially. Um, but if you aren't a business owner consider, okay, is this credit card worth paying this annual fee for, um, also consider your spending habits. So I put every single thing on my credit card, like all my bills, all my purchases, everything goes on my credit card because that's how you get cash back rewards. So that's another thing you look for. Like if you're putting a lot on your credit card and you can pay it off responsibly, what is The reward program is it cash back? Is it you know percentage for groceries? Like there's different kind of breakdowns on what you can get for your credit cards. Another thing you want to look for is some of the perks that are offered. So I used to travel all the time for leisure, and I wanted travel insurance on my credit cards. So a lot of times, certain credit cards offer insurance on your purchases. They also offer some health benefits on your purchases. So if you went on a trip and you got sick, um, some credit cards have like little health perks. Like you can call in if you get, if you end up in the hospital or something like that. So look at your own personal life. Um, Maybe I know there's some credit cards that are like really good for grocery shopping. So I don't really like cooking and I don't, I usually eat out instead of grocery shopping. So that credit card wouldn't be the best for me, but if you buy groceries like a normal person or you love meal prepping or you love cooking and groceries are a big item in your budget, then it might be good to look into a credit card that gives you good rewards for groceries. So there's tons of credit cards out there. Um, One of the final things you want to look for is the interest rate on that credit card. So in the ideal world, you're paying off your credit card and you never pay interest on it. But if you're in a situation where you're like, I need to use this credit card for emergencies. And I'm not really, you know, financially secure to be cash flowing it properly. Then you'll probably want to look at a really low interest credit card. If you know you're going to hold a balance on it and most start at around 19 to 20%, but there are some that are like 11%. So that's something to look into as well. But I definitely don't want to encourage anyone carrying a balance. I just know that that's the reality for a lot of people. So I want to present that to you, that there are low-interest credit cards out there if you're in that situation. Yeah, I love how you mentioned carrying a balance. Um,
1: I think one of the main mistakes that a lot of people make is that they don't manage their rewards efficiently when they're applying for credit cards. So for example, some credit cards such as Amex give you a certain amount of points welcome bonus points if you spend a certain amount of dollars in the first few months. So I think one of the main things people need to take into consideration is if you don't have that amount of money to spend in the first few months and um, you don't normally spend that amount of money, then that credit card might not be for you. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's another great point that people should take into consideration. Is just because um, certain credit cards do offer certain rewards if you can't upkeep those rewards and you have to continuously carry a balance then those rewards kind of cancel out and it might not even be worth it for you so it's great to just track your spending see where you spend the most and then kind of from there go and find a credit card that just suits your needs
0: yeah and also not to point out amex but it's not accepted everywhere so if you are going to a grocery store, that's your regular grocery store and Amex is not accepted, then is that the right card for you? I don't know.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's great resources like GreatHub.ca, which we'll link in the show notes, um, along with some of the resources that Liz, you have on your blog. But it helps people break down what or compare side by side what different rewards or interest or annual fees certain cards have. And that helps you make a decision about what cards right for you.
0: Yeah. There's never a way to blindly tell someone like I get questions every day, like what bank account should I open or what credit cards should I have? And I can't answer that. First of all, you know, it requires all, all of personal finances is personal. So it requires like 40 more questions. Like, well, where do you normally shop? How much do you spend a year? Like you ask yourself all these questions. So these websites where you can go and compare it yourself based on what you know about your own life is kind of the best, route to go because you need to know a lot of questions about yourself to figure out what is the best card for you.
2: Definitely. And just circling back to where we started the whole conversation, like let's say you want to invest in real estate. One of the things that that um, is really important is your credit score because that's what's required for a mortgage. Um, and, and that's ultimately what helps you buy a place unless you're paying cash upfront, which is you know kind of crazy, um, but some people do it. So my my question for you, Liz, is how would you suggest building your credit score if you're looking to get a mortgage or if you you don't have a long period of time to work on it? The
0: best way is to get a credit card and to pay it off and spend less than 30% of the credit limit. So if your credit limit is $5,000, don't spend more than 30% of that. And Credit, co- credit scores in general follow, I think it's about five different rules about how it works. One of them is credit history. So how long have you had that card for? This is why you don't wanna just be opening new cards and thinking that's building your credit score. The credit history matters. Um, credit utilization rate. So using 30% or less than your credit limit. Um, the credit type. So if you have a credit card and you have a student loan that's gonna be in your benefit because essentially it shows um, the credit bureaus that you can handle borrowed money. The credit score is essentially that, like it's just a beacon that shows lenders. So like a bank, if this person was to get money for a mortgage as a loan, are they reliable and trustworthy? And can we expect them to make their regular payments? If your credit score is higher, it's pretty much telling the credit limit, or sorry, the institution that yes, This person can handle borrowed money. They can handle debt and they are highly likely to pay it off. If your credit score is low, then it shows them like, okay, this person was given a loan or had a credit card and they're having trouble paying it off. So there's a correlation. If you're having a hard time paying off your credit card, it might be um, an indication that you're going to have a hard time paying off your mortgage. And that's why it's harder to get a mortgage with a lower credit score.
2: Definitely, and there are ways to check it that don't actually ding your score. Um, So, Credit Karma is a great resource. It's an app. Um, There are a few other ones that we'll link in the show notes. But it, like, CIBC Katie was showing me actually integrated (laughs) in their their um,
1: mobile banking app a um, a tab where you can just check your credit card for free at any time credit score credit (laughs) Mm -hmm. card free at any time. So that's really cool as well. Yeah, I was just showing Nika my credit score before our um, before our session right now and um it's just it's crazy how um banks now are making it so accessible to check these things on a whim
0: yeah i also find that the different um websites and apps often have variations on credit scores like my bank i think it's like 854 but through BorrowWell, it's only 810 so there is discrepancies from um platform to platform so i would just throw that out there and maybe check a few. Um, It's probably not super, super different, but if you're on that cusp, um, because there is a cusp for mortgages, I can't remember the number off the top of my head, but, you know, brokers and mortgage brokers will look for that number. If you're on that cusp and you're like, oh yeah, I'm totally good, maybe check another one just to double check that you are within the range that is acceptable.
1: I also think people shouldn't sleep on Um, building and attaining a great credit score because it's not only used for obtaining loans or credit. Say if you want to go and rent an apartment, and you probably know this because you are a um, homeowner and have an investment property, one of the things landlords do look at is your credit score. Yeah. So having a great credit score is great in a lot of instances as well.
2: Yeah, like regardless of if you're renting or if you're looking to buying a place, it's really important. Um, One thing, Lizzie, you mentioned is thresholds of mortgage threshold. I'm not sure exactly what it is because it does change. So it's looking at resources from five years ago and the limit for for borrowing and for getting a mortgage was 720. And I think now it's gone up to 750. But what Katie and I have decided as like a benchmark for what you should work towards is making sure that it's at least higher than 760, just so that you've got a little bit of a buffer. And especially like Liz, you said, some of the apps, they'll give you various um, actual ratings. So if you aim for 760 and above, you should be good. So regardless of if you've got an 850, which is I think the max that you can have or 805, as long as you're above 760 you're within a good range so you're still going to be approved um, for for loans most i mean loans. most loans yeah. i mean it's also also benchmarked against other things like what your income is and all kinds of different things but that's just one of the pieces that's important for um obtaining loans
1: and just mm-hmm. to butt in i think it's a 900 actually that's I think the it's max 850 in the states and 900, 900 canada okay canada
2: that was uh yeah. to clarify <laughs>
1: for our listeners.
0: So and speak- it's not, I, I would just wanna kind of add to that. Like, I don't think I do anything extra. I don't go out of my way to think about, oh, how do I raise my credit score? What I do is pay off all my balances. Like I never carry a balance. And I know it's easier said than done for a lot of people, but that's really the easiest way is to use your credit card and pay it off. I, you know, I paid off early. I don't wait for them to say, here's like the minimum you owe. Like, no, pay it off in full well in advance and that continue on. And that's how you build your credit score the easiest way. Um, Yeah. And I think that's a
1: great thing to get into right now is not to carry a balance, paying your bills in full. Because I think as Nika and I mentioned before on previous episodes, that interest is around 20%. Mm -hmm. And that accumulates and you can find yourself in way more debt if you continue to um, carry over money month to month.
2: Yeah, definitely. Credit
0: card debt is a vicious snowball. And if you can get out of it and stay out of it, it'll really help you kind of catapult your finances. And you you make more money because you can save more money because you're not spending money on paying off interest payments.
2: Definitely. And going back to the different levels of financial wealth as well, if somebody is in a situation where they have credit card debt or student loans or uh, maybe a line of credit that they're trying to close out, that's the first priority for anybody before they start investing, because you're not going to borrow money to invest and then dig yourself into an even bigger hole because investing, it is a little bit of a gamble. Like you're taking a risk and unless you're a hundred percent sure that you're going to make money off of that investment, which you never really do, it's, it's dangerous. So Mm -hmm. making sure that all your debts are paid off first, that's the biggest priority. And then you can start getting a little bit creative and trying to build uh, either different income streams or investing. So Liz, my, my question for you is, you said you have an investment property. We talked about real estate a bit and maybe entrepreneurship, but what other avenues um, have you seen people explore to build uh, build wealth for themselves?
0: Yeah, definitely real estate is one of them. Um, I, I'm going through this inner kind of exploration to be like, do I want to get into more real estate? I have I have money benchmarked for another property, but I don't know if I want to be like a multi-property owner because it is a lot of work and it does require a lot of upfront capital, but it has been rewarding. Um, People make money through real estate two different ways. Well, a few different ways, but the main ones are appreciation. So when the value of your house goes up and you can sell it um, and also cash flow, So those are the monthly rent payments. And so that's one of the ways that people make money through real estate. I mean, entrepreneurship is another way that people can create wealth. Um, Within entrepreneurship, there's different business models. So I offer services, other people offer products like, you know, bakers or people on Etsy, like they're making physical products. Another way is passive income streams. Um, That's under entrepreneurship and also in real estate. There's tons of different ways to make money um, then it really kind of depends on what you're interested in and what your skills are. So for my two businesses, my first one was shoutouts Hamilton. I started both businesses for under a hundred dollars. Cause they're just online. Like I don't have a brick and mortar location for social media management. I was going to business owners that didn't have social media presence being like, Hey, let me run your Instagram account. Like it's not that hard for me to do it. And I'll do it for you for a fee. And that kept growing. And I had, um, 43 accounts that like over my, my period of running that business. Um, so that was one way of making money pretty simply. And most millennials are qualified for that because we all know how to use Instagram. And then that was using my skills. And then for ambitious adulting, it was really about using my passions. Like I loved talking about personal finances and I was able to find ways to monetize that. So it's really about finding creative ways to make money on the side.
1: For sure. And Liz, I have a question right now with the current situation and the pandemic and rent prices going down and all this stuff, all these new laws with um, not increasing your rent and this and that, do you still think it's a good time or opportunity right now in this current market condition to invest in real estate?
0: It depends on the city. So rent prices are going down in places like Toronto. And people are moving out of places like Toronto and I'm in Hamilton and they're all coming here. So rent prices continue to go up here in Hamilton because the demand keeps going up. So real estate is very um, location dependent and there's not a general like, yes, it's a good idea. Like in some cities, it's not a good idea because the housing market is so expensive and it's so hard to get into it. That you don't even cash flow because by the time you pay off your mortgage and your bills you can't have rent like i mean rent is already super expensive but like it can't go any higher because you have to kind of see what the market is doing so you can't be the only one on the street charging whatever three thousand dollars a month when everyone else is charging 1500 so yes and no it depends on what city you're in
2: now, that was a really great point, Liz, especially in Toronto. It's almost unheard of to be cash flow positive on a property, um, especially with, with condos specifically. So with condo prices plummeting right now and interest rates as low as they are, it's, you know, a good time to to buy in hopes that the property will appreciate, which is one way, like you said, of making money in real estate. But um, rental income in the Toronto market is is very different from what it looks like so it's a great insight that you um provided us about Hamilton um there's a ton of emerging markets like that in across Ontario across all of Canada for our listeners so like Calgary is an interesting one where real estate is not nearly as expensive as it is in Toronto London Ontario is um mm-hmm. it's really up and coming one Windsor of my good, yeah Windsor one of my good friends just bought a property in Port Colburn um Which is interesting as a market as well. So there's lots of opportunity out there, guys. You just need to be open to it. Yeah, and
0: there's lots of Facebook groups as well, like real estate investors that share this information. Like, hey, like Hamilton, even Hamilton's getting um, you know overpriced and saturated for real estate investing, and a lot of people are moving to the Niagara region um, for investments. And so you know it's constantly changing, and you have to if if this is something you're interested in, you have to pay attention to what people are talking about, what the markets are doing, what the trends are like, okay, how is the pandemic gonna change the way society and you know, wherever you are, how is it changing that? Like, are people moving into the cities? Are they moving out of the cities? Is there a demand for condos versus not a demand anymore? Cause nobody <laughs> seems like they had a good experience during the pandemic living in a condo. Like all of these things you have to be aware of the current market conditions if you're gonna be investing.
1: I think regardless of the current market conditions as well, being a, I wouldn't say a property owner, but I have a a couple of investment properties in the family, something everyone should consider when purchasing or deciding on purchasing an investment property is if you are a do-it-yourself kind of person. Because if you're not going to get in there and do some of these renovations or come in there when something breaks and and you need to fix it yourself, then you won't make a lot of money. Because on top of your mortgage and all of your other expenses, if you have to pay someone to come in there and fix something when it breaks, which can happen quite often, especially depending on the type of tenants you have in your investment property, you're probably not going to be cash flow positive. So I think it also depends on the type of person you are and if you're willing to take on that additional work and responsibility.
2: Yeah. And then like there's, like you said, owning multiple properties, it becomes a really big headache. And if you're paying a property manager, then that's a portion of your, um, of your profit that you're essentially losing it. You're giving to somebody else just to manage the properties. So there's definitely a balance and finding what works for you is is uh really important because what works for you may not work for for someone else and
1: yeah and just looking at what kind of stage in your life you're at so for example if you're a working professional or if you have children if you want to um allocate time out of your day to go down to the property to check on the property to deal with uh, tenants to deal with this to deal with that so i think it's just also important to just Evaluate um, what stage you are in your life and what type of person you are as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, the other thing too is the finances of it. Like, I know that my money is tied up in the mortgage for a-, a while, like at least five years. So, luckily, I don't, I planned that I don't need that money right now. I also know that I have to save for repairs on the house. Like, I just got a new AC put in in the summer and I have to get new windows put in eventually. So instead of me saving this money, because I wanted to go on a cool trip or upgrade my house, I now have to save this money for the rental property. So it's really about like, okay, when do you need the money? And this is when we talk about time horizons in investing. If you need the money, you know, next year, because you want to upgrade your house, well, it's going to be hard when it's tied up, you can refinance, and there's a whole bunch of ways to get around it. But just thinking about it in terms of, the finances and when you need the money and how are you gonna be saving for this property is also important when considering real estate.
1: And also the sacrifices you're willing to make. Like, as you said, um, you might not be able to do renovations on your own house right now or go on these trips because your money's tied up elsewhere. So Mm -hmm. just having that vision and looking into the future and and really telling yourself, okay, like once this mortgage is paid up or when it's no longer tied up in the mortgage and I'm seeing more of that cash flow come in from the rental income in the future, I will have more money to do the things that I want to do right now. So just looking at that trade-off and really visualizing what's important to you right now. For sure. Okay, Liz, well, thank you so much for your time. I have one last question for you. Okay. So Liz, what does wealth mean to you?
0: Oh, I love this question. I I think I spend a lot of time reflecting on this. And to me, it means less stress and more choices. So I get to choose what I want to do each day. And I don't have to say yes to projects that don't excite me. And that's kind of what wealth means to me. just more of
2: doing whatever I want. I love that. I think for, for myself, um, Wealth means freedom, so definitely choice is is a big part in that. But just freedom to to do anything, like it opens up so many doors. And um, one of our first episodes that we talked about, where people have a negative mindset about money, having having more wealth allows you to do more good in the world as well. So mm-hmm. that's um, that's a big kind of mindset piece that I have.
1: I'm yeah. trying to figure out what wealth means to me. I think it it changes a little bit every day, but I I would agree with you, Liz, on just being able to have that choice and make the decisions you want to make, not because you have to, but because you want to. So
2: I would agree. Yeah, that's awesome, Liz. Well, thank you so much for, for being on our podcast today. Um, It was an awesome conversation. We got into a lot of stuff, a lot of really interesting topics that I think people will really find value in. So I appreciate uh, you sharing your stories and, uh, and sharing your advice and your tips.
0: My pleasure. I love talking about finances. I'm so happy you guys are doing this podcast. And yeah, I'm just excited to watch it grow. And please,
1: for all our listeners, check out Ambitious Adulting. Again, we'll have everything you need in our show notes. And yes, thank you so much, Liz. It was an absolute
2: pleasure. Liz, if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, how how can they find you outside of uh, the website?
0: Oh, I am on every platform, TikTok included, which is like So embarrassing for me because I do stupid videos. But under ambitious adulting, every platform you can possibly think of, I am on there.
2: Love it, awesome. Well, we'll definitely link um, some of the resources in the show notes, like I mentioned. And if anybody wants to connect with Liz, just um, a quick note: her Instagram is at ambitious adulting. And if all the other channels are the same, then you won't have any difficulty finding her. But again, thank you so much for for being on our show today. Really appreciate your time. And uh, thanks for sharing your your advice.
0: Yeah, good luck, everyone out there. And I know I'm rooting for everyone. I'm rooting for you.
2: (laughs) Thanks so much, Liz.
0: Okay, bye.